In the spotlight, an award-winning investigative reporter who spent many years in Boston as a member of the Globe's elite spotlight team. She's also a published author and is now working in Washington as a reporter for the Washington Post. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. This is the story of a woman who has always questioned what doesn't make sense. She's a fearless person, she's curious, and she refuses to be leveled by the word no. That's what makes her so successful. And we'll talk about how she defines success in her industry in this episode. These days, she's made the creative leap from writing stories for print to co-hosting a new podcast called Broken Doors, a series that's devoted to no-knock warrants. I couldn't wait to hear her stories and find out how she gets around obstacles, her advice for reporters just getting started, and the strategies she has used to get to where she is today. Her name is Jen Abelson, and this is her story. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. The podcast is a six-part series, and it explores no-knock warrants and what often happens as a result of these warrants. So, Just to set the story up, tell us exactly what this type of warrant allows law enforcement to do and why they're used in the first place. Sure. So most people have probably seen what a traditional search warrant looks like on TV, where police will come to your door, they'll knock, they'll say, police search warrant, open up the door. And a no-knock warrant is when they get permission ahead of time sometimes to just essentially break down your door without warning and they come into your home, usually in a search for drugs or other illicit activities. Episode number one, you learned that no-knock warrants are incredibly easy to get. Yes. There were a few findings that we walked away with that we were pretty struck by, and one of those was just how easy it was to get one of the most aggressive and intrusive forms of policing. And that's what no-knocks are. They are times when police are often showing up in the middle of the night without warning, breaking down your door when you're not expecting it in search for suspected illegal activity. Your co-host is Nicole Dunka. And I have to tell you, Jen, I had a co-host for 23 years, and we each came to the table with our own interests, our own strengths and weaknesses. For us, it was kind of like a yin and yang thing. How does your partnership work with Nicole? My relationship with Nicole actually dates back several years to the Boston Globe Spotlight team where we first met and have developed a reporting relationship um, over the years. And what was really special about this was that this was the first time both of us were ever diving into the world of audio storytelling. And so we both have different reporting strengths and weaknesses, but we were coming into this whole new world of audio storytelling together and learning how to do it and trying to do the best that we could. It's a really powerful form of journalism that I've learned of investigative journalism. And so, you know, Nicole is really amazing with sources. She's so good at getting people to open up in vulnerable moments. I also am sort of a document geek and a document nerd. And so I love going through papers, requesting records. I had stacks and stacks of documents during this podcast project piled up on my desk. I'd bring them with me to Mississippi. And so we had a really great back and forth relationship. And we just built on that for this project. Well, speaking of emotional type interviews and needing to be so cautious and so respectful, part six of the series includes an emotional interview with the mother of Breonna Taylor, who was killed in 2020 when police were carrying out a no-knock warrant. So let's talk a little bit about that interview and the role of an investigative reporter when you're looking for the truth, you want to get the story, but you have to be so tender with victims and their families. It was 
giving time for sources to take a moment to breathe, to take a moment to cry, to do what they need to do in that moment, to be able to sit there and talk to us, and if they need to, step away. Tamika talked to us about how this was so bittersweet for her because the public and the world had really come to know her daughter's name, but she was known because of this horrible tragedy. And they were coming together to fight for what she believed in efforts to reform police that were badly needed. But at the end of the day, she still didn't have her daughter to come back and talk to. So it was trying to find new ways to talk to her about that moment that had forever changed her life and still be able to revisit it with sort of emotions and thoughtfulness that still stays with her every day. When these details are brought into the light and into the public eye, I guess the hope is that there will come some change. I think that Nicole and I do this kind of reporting because we feel like it's so important to shine a spotlight onto, particularly into communities that often don't get an opportunity to have a platform, to have people pay attention to them and to explain what's going on in their lives and the challenges they face. For us, these are the kinds of stories that we feel like are so important to tell to be able to, you know, bring the kind of accounting and responsibility that we have as journalists to present the facts as we can find them and then to let others decide and make judgments based on our findings. And so I, you know, especially with this story, found it so compelling to be able to have people have their own voices to do this investigative podcast. Usually I'm used to doing written stories and I'm the one in charge of the pen and paper, but to be able to give and share sort of the storytelling platform to the people whose lives we're talking about, to the people whose lives were changed forever, and honestly to the law enforcement and to the people who are carrying out these no-knock warrants, to hear their voices and why they think it's still important to be able to have these kinds of policing tools was really, really powerful. Can you tell listeners how they can find your series, Broken Doors? You can find the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, as well as at WashingtonPost.com slash Broken Doors. In 2020, Jen, you were part of a team at the Washington Post that investigated the opioid crisis in America. And your team's work made it to the finals for a Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. Congratulations. When you do this kind of work for a living... You learn some startling things. That was a pretty amazing project to dive into with my colleagues who led the reporting efforts there. Essentially, what they were able to do is get their hands on data that was able to track every single opioid pill from the manufacturer to the distributor to the pharmacies and to see sort of how this crisis literally moved pill by pill through communities. And I took a lead role in trying to look at the pharmacy's role, particularly Walgreens, and also looking at the role of independent pharmacies and the ones that played an outsized role in helping to dispense these pills into communities where they were having, you know, raging, devastating crises related to opioid overdose deaths, as well as addiction problems. So we're obviously operating in hindsight where we know that there was a crisis happening, but it seemed hard when, as we were digging into the data and looking at the information, at the numbers of pills that these pharmacies were dispensing and the populations that they were supposedly serving in these like rural communities or other places, that there was a clear disconnect between how many pills were going through these pharmacies and the populations they were serving. And so it felt important at every step of the way, and that's kind of what our team tried to do, is to be able to hold both the manufacturers, the distributors, as well as the pharmacies responsible for the role they played in the opioid crisis. 
You worked also for years at the Boston Globe, and that's how you and I came to know about one another. You were part of the elite spotlight team. And of course, everybody knows a movie was even made about the work done by the spotlight team years ago when they uncovered abuses uh, by Catholic priests in the Catholic Church. Tell us about some stories that you worked on for the team. I was not part of the movie. <laughs> that was not me. <laughs> that was bad. my. I mean, who would have played you, Jen? It would have been so exciting. <laughs> it was my amazing colleague, Sasha Pfeiffer, who I had the great fortune to work with actually, you know, a decade or so later, two decades later, um, related to sexual abuse in the modeling industry. And so there were actually a number of my spotlight projects took on the issue of sexual abuse and sexual misconduct. I worked with a, an amazing reporter, John Saltzman, looking at the issue of sexual misconduct in boarding schools in New England. And that is what ultimately led me to work with Chessie Prout, who was a high school survivor of sexual assault at St. Paul's. And we had worked together on the book, I Have the Right to Together, which was a totally transforming experience for me. It was tackling these really hallmark issues, these really difficult issues that made me understand how grateful I am and how lucky I am to be able to do the work I do because I would have the opportunity to spend months, if not a full year, on a project. And that's really rare in the world of journalism. So often we are chasing, you know, story to story, moment to moment. And I had the opportunity to be able to take the time I needed to gain the trust of sources who were telling me sometimes for the first time in their entire lives about, you know, sexual abuse that had happened to them. They hadn't told any other family members. They hadn't told any friends, but they were telling me for the first time. And you understand like this, you know, really, really important role you're playing and this huge responsibility you have to people, to their stories, to ensure that what they're telling you is true and is backed up with as many facts as you can. And so I really, you know, look back at my time at Spotlight with such fondness to be able to have had that time and opportunity to work with such a great team. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Chessie Prout story, because it's pretty stunning and the statistics are even more stunning. Nearly one in five girls between the ages of 14 and 17 have been the victim of a sexual assault or an attempted sexual assault. And this is the story of what happened to Chessie Prout at only 14 at an elite school called St. Paul's School in New Hampshire. Give us the storyline. Chessie was a freshman at St. Paul's. She had come to St. Paul's with a, you know, a real, real excitement. Her sister was a senior there when she entered as a freshman. Her dad had gone there. She'd heard all these stories about what an amazing place it had been for her dad. And it was really this place of safety and security that Chessie's family thought that they were providing for her after she had had a bit of tumult and early in her life when she'd been living in Japan with her family and there was an earthquake there. And so she came to St. Paul's really excited about what was to come and very quickly learned about sort of the rampant sexism and misogyny and this kind of egregious sexual misconduct culture that existed on her first day there. There was a school dance where a boy groped her and several friends on the dance floor in plain full sight of adults watching and nothing was done. And she did not Mm. understand at the time what that meant. And unfortunately, was sort of was a real precursor to a growing number of eye-opening experiences that she had, which ultimately culminated in the assault a few days before her sister's graduation by a senior 
as part of this ritual that was written about in the student newspaper that was memorialized as part of like a student independent project, essentially called the Senior Salute, where seniors would target and try to have sex with as many underclassmen as they could before they graduated. And Chessie had immediately, you know, pretty soon after she had reported it to her family and to her police after trying to wrap her head around what had happened. And then she spent many years fighting at first anonymously and then publicly for justice. Where does your love for uncovering the truth and looking into, I guess I'd call it the dark places, where does all that come from for you, Jen? I think it began at a really early age. I always was asking questions and challenging authority. And I don't feel like that was necessarily super well received when I was younger and in high school or my parents or people just want me to accept whatever the answer was because they were the adults and I was not an adult. And I was a high school newspaper geek. I was on my school paper and I really loved the opportunity at that time to be able to have a platform to be able to ask the questions that I had a pen and paper and there was a newspaper column and being able to question things that were happening in the school at the time that didn't fully make sense. And so I've always just sort of innately had this curiosity and willingness and I guess fearlessness to challenge people in charge and not be, you know, afraid of power. Take us back then just a little bit to your childhood. Tell us where you come from and paint us a picture of what life was like in your house. I grew up in Long Island. My family all still lives there. I still visit them often. I'm the only one who's left. My best friend from high school, he was the editor-in-chief of the paper. We're still best friends to this day, and we still on each in our own ways. He doesn't work in journalism, but his name is Matt, and we are still very close, and he still works to fight against power and injustices in his own way. And so my parents always supported my dream of journalism. I always seemed to take a path that wasn't the way everyone else did. You know, I went to college and I knew in college I wanted to be a journalist, but instead of applying for jobs, I decided to go abroad for 10 months and do a volunteer program and do something that was not career related. And in many ways, it didn't make sense because of my whole career path was very clearly identified. I knew I wanted to do, but I've always tried to kind of take risks and make myself a little bit uncomfortable and not always take the path that everyone else is taking. Let's say that there's a young person who's listening to this episode and they want to do what you are doing. Can you give them any words of wisdom to get them closer to that goal? I think you have to really be used to rejection is one of the first things I tell people, which is that so much of my job involves rejection. People not wanting to talk to me, people not wanting to embrace story ideas that I think are good because I'm frequently digging in places people don't want us to look. I'm asking questions of people who don't want to give answers. And so you have to prepare yourself and be thick skinned to some extent that you don't take rejection personally. That's a really important lesson I've learned over time as an investigative journalist. And then also it's just like I have worked for over 20 years to get where I am. And it doesn't take 20 years, obviously, for everyone to do it. But it's very rare to be able to like come right out of college or in college just to do, you know, investigative work full time, whatever job, whatever beat you end up covering to look for in addition to whatever you're expected to do, whatever breaking stories to do, to look for the larger enterprise and investigative stories, to question the things that don't make sense to you and to work on those on the side simultaneously. So you can start to develop profile and portfolio of being able to do ambitious work and being able to handle larger projects. 
Every job gets you up, gets you down, but I just feel really lucky to be able to have a job that pretty much day in and day out I like doing, I enjoy doing, I'm excited about the work. I feel so grateful to work at The Post because they are a newsroom that is growing, they are investing in their journalists and the journalism. And so we had, you know, dozens of people who were helping being able to market and promote and do some data and get this project off the ground and to as many listeners as possible. And the editing and the audio staff, like they were phenomenal. We worked with this amazing audio producer, Rena Flores, who has spearheaded two of the investigative podcasts that The Post has now produced to be able to have those people who are willing to take on these, you know, I've been around a while, I know how to do my job, but I have no clue how to do podcasting. And so to take people who are really confident in certain areas and have no confidence when it comes to, you know, tackling a whole new platform and be able to help them and elevate them and amplify their voices and others and allow us to extend our investigating skills into new story form opportunities is really exciting. And not every journalism outlet has all of that in-house. And so we do. And so it makes me so proud to be able to work there. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I often will consult with my editors and my peers about what is the expected way that someone would tackle this obstacle and what are other routes to do it. What are we not thinking of? What have we missed, particularly when it comes to trying to like get things for an investigative project? If there's documents we want, you know, who else could have gotten this email? Where else is it publicly available? Is there some sort of filing? What are all the different ways? Is there someone who used to work there that may be aware of this conversation who doesn't work there anymore and maybe isn't as risky for them to speak out? So it's really thinking through all the different scenarios and the ways in which you could find a way around this obstacle. And the more voices and the more people you consult, you'll often find a way to get it. Have you had a role model or a mentor, somebody who showed you the ropes and continues to be someone who gives you some pretty solid advice? I haven't had one for the entirety of my career. I would say there were different people over different times that have served as role models for me. I think in this latest incarnation as a podcaster, my really wonderful close friend, Meredith Goldstein, who I hope you know, who is the Love yes. Letters columnist, we go back many, many years. She actually sort of introduced me to my partner. We've been together for, Paul and I have been together for many years now. But, you know, she, through the years, has been a cheerleader for me. She, you know, is a trailblazer, as we all know, and she had written many books before I decided to take on working with Chessie on her memoir. And I went to Meredith and was like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm not sure. Like, And Meredith's like, not only like, can you do this, you have to do this. Similarly with podcasting, you know, she gave me the confidence I needed to be able to know that I can do this, even though I would sometimes cringe hearing my voice <laughs> over and <laughs> over again. And so I owe a lot to her throughout my career. We started around the same time at the Globe, and we've stayed very close all these years. I was actually just staying with her when I was in Boston the other week. And she, to me, has been the best ally and friend I could ever have in the world of journalism. And so many people, I think, will claim Meredith as like their best friend. And I think, I hope everyone out there has a Meredith. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever received, Jen? And this can be personal, it can be professional, but I'm wondering if you can pass it along to our listeners. Do important work to enjoy what you're doing and to carry yourself out in a way that you're proud of. 
We are living in a very dark time, I think, and the country is more divided every single day. And some say that both traditional and new media has played a role in this and that the basic tenets of journalism are being blurred. What do you say about that? We live in a really complicated time where our jobs are more difficult than ever and regular individuals who are trying to sort through what are news and what are facts have a more challenging time than ever because of, like you said, there's blurring between information and misinformation and disinformation. And when there are people actively trying to distort reality and distort facts, it makes it very difficult for people who are not savvy and sophisticated or just your average reader, average listener to make sense of everything. Final question. At this moment and in this chapter in your life and in your career, what does success mean to you? Success to me at this stage means still being able to take risks and still being able to do things that are challenging and inspiring to me and being able to walk away and feel proud of what I've been able to do. That's part of why I've made some of the changes that I have and decisions I have in my life. I was having a great career at the Boston Globe and could have stayed there forever, but I decided to take a book leave not knowing if it was something I could actually do. And when I did it, it was so challenging and inspiring. And it made me feel confident to pursue the next risk, which was like, okay, what else exists out there in the world of journalism, of investigative journalism? And to be in a different newsroom, you know, for the first time in, you know, 18 years was really frightening and inspiring and challenging and felt incredibly rewarding. At this stage of my career, I continue to try to seek out those kinds of opportunities where I'm feeling challenged, a little uncomfortable, taking risks, but being able to feel inspired and proud of the work I do. Well, I want to say thank you so much for being on the show, Jen, and for connecting again. I really have enjoyed this interview. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate the conversation. And that's the story behind her success for this week. My thanks to Jen Abelson, investigative reporter for The Washington Post and the co-host of the new podcast series, Broken Doors. Thank you, thank you for sharing your story with us. Find Broken Doors at WashingtonPost.com backslash Broken Doors. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile. So if you have someone in mind, will you please let me know all about her? Just go to my website, CandyOterry.com. That's Candy with a Y and O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. Give the show a follow on your favorite podcast platform. And please tell your friends and your family all about the show. Leave a review if you would be so kind, because I will have a new inspiring story for you next week. When we share our stories, no matter where we are in this great big world, we provide a roadmap towards success. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it.